Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Angels are sons by what? By creation. Mankind, or Adam, was a son by creation, but he fell, right? And so now we can become sons through what process? Adoption or redemption, that's what the plan of salvation is all about. We become sons of God. But Christ, it tells us, he's in a category all by himself. Nobody else is in that category. Christ is actually a son who is begotten. He's not created. He's not redeemed. He's not adopted. He's not bestowed this title upon him. He is actually born of the Father. That's why he is the only one who holds that position of equality with the Father. And since he is the only begotten son, that immediately tells us there can be no other one who is equal with the father besides the son. He didn't have more sons, right? There's only one begotten son. That's important to help us understand as we go on. And so one of these angels that were created, of course, was the greatest and mightiest angel of all, whose name was Lucifer. Christ was begotten or brought forth. Lucifer was created. There is a very big difference. To say that uh, Christ is created is to equate him with a created with, with Lucifer. That's what Satan wants, right? But the scripture makes it very clear that Christ is in this unique, unique position. He's the only begotten of God. And he was known as the Son of God from the Old Testament. I'll just use this one example because our time is running. And I want to get to the end before our time does. In uh, the Old Testament, people recognized that God had a son. Story we all know is Daniel and the, uh, well, since it's recorded in Daniel, but Daniel wasn't there. The three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3.25. When the king, uh, you know, threw them in the fire, it says, He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. This was before Bethlehem, right? A long time before Bethlehem. You ever ask yourself the question, how did King Nebuchadnezzar know that God had a son. Because there were three missionaries there, right? Who testified to their faith. And uh, he knew, he recognized in the form of the fourth, of course, Christ. His name was not Jesus at that time, was it? No, it wasn't. It was Christ. He was the Messiah to come. His name was Jesus when he was born on earth. Okay, I don't want to confuse anyone, but that's, that's, his, that's his name as a man. He was here, the divine son of God. And he was still the son of God, of course, as a man. So, uh, this was recognized in the scriptures. I want to see how this reflects on the time when Christ was on earth. Did he teach that? Did he teach that he was born of God or that he came from God or came out of God? Yes, he did. John 8, 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. If you look it up in the Greek, you'll find that it literally means I came out from God. He was the only begotten of God. Now you understand why Christ has this unique position. Why it makes him say the things that he says. Nobody else has that. That's why he belongs to God. That's why the father says, listen, this is my son. You know, it's very rare when the father speaks from earth, uh, from heaven to earth. We read about only three such events in the, in the New Testament. And one other one that hasn't happened yet, it's still coming. There's only three times that God spoke from heaven to earth with an audible voice that was heard. 
And those three times, they all had to do with Christ and the sonship of Christ. In two particular ones, he spelled it out. He says, this is my son. This is my beloved son. It's important to God. If this is the case, what did Christ then inherit from the Father, if anything? If Christ is indeed born of the Father, because every child, every one of us, inherited something automatically from our parents, right? What's the first thing we inherit from our parents? The character? It's the nature that they have. We're born, every time there is a baby coming, we expect the baby to be what category of creatures? Human being, right? It's so obvious we don't even think about it. You know, it's like, of course, what else do you think it'll be? Because the nature of the parents is human being. The first thing we inherit is the nature of our parents, humanity. What did Christ inherit from his father? If his father is the, the, the true God, the true and living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the divine God, then what did he inherit? Of course, he inherited his nature. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 tells us a little bit about that. It says of Christ, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. If you look up the word name in the scriptures, you'll find it means a number of things, right? It doesn't only mean the name that we refer to a person by. It means a few things. Name means character. Name means authority. Jesus says, I'm coming, my fathers. Name, right? Name means authority. It means character. It also means power and authority. Power and authority are much the same thing. Name also signifies nature. The Bible, when God created Adam and Eve, the Bible says, and he called their name Adam. This is a little a detail that sometimes we miss. The name of Adam and Eve was Adam. It's actually the name of the race. It's, it's humanity, the human race. And so the very first human, Adam, uh, has that name as his own personal name, but we are all Adam or we're all sons of Adam. We have the Adam nature, right? That's how we come into this world. So Christ inherited a more excellent name and that name there signifies all these things. He inherited that from his father. And so in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 and 21, we have this revelation. This interesting verse it says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Who was this angel that had God's name in him? It is Christ. His name was in him long before Bethlehem, brothers and sisters. This is in the wilderness in Sinai, right? Christ had the Father's name. He inherited the Father's name, the Father's nature, the Father's character, the Father's power and authority is His by right of inheritance because He is the only begotten of the Father. And that's why He can say, I'm the door, there's no one else. You can't come the other, any other way. I'm the way to the Father. There's no one else, no other way that you can come to the Father. That's what makes Him the only mediator between God and man. And of course, the name of the Father we already said is in the Hebrew, Yahweh, or we know it commonly in English as Jehovah. And uh, I find this interesting from a spirit of prophecy. 
commenting on that, says, Christ was not only the leader of the Hebrews in the wilderness, the angel in whom was the name of Jehovah, and who veiled, and who veiled in the cloudy pillar, went before the host, but it was he who gave the law to Israel. And this is in the book, Patriots and Prophets, if anyone has read that. If you haven't, I strongly recommend you read that book. Pretty nice, nice book. In him was the name of Jehovah, his father. His father's name was in him. And uh, this is the thing, you know, we talk to people and you say, no, no, hold on, you know, uh, there, is, uh, there is more than one Jehovah. There's actually how many? Most people believe there is three, right? Because there is this common belief, this, this idea of the Trinity, that God is three in one and one in three, an idea that does not exist in the Bible. That's a big claim, I know. But I'll be happy to retract my words if we can find it in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, this idea is foreign to the scriptures. It does not exist in God's word. It exists, though, in tradition and in many pagan cultures and systems. It surely exists, but not in God's word. We read in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord Jehovah is how many? One, right? Not two and not three. So the name Jehovah is really the proper name of who? The Father. And just as when we are born, we inherit our family name from our parents, Christ also is called by the name of His Father because He is the only begotten Son and no one else is called by that name. Here's this interesting statement. Jehovah is the name given to, to Christ. You ever saw that statement before? It's one of those other rare statements we can put in that list with that previous one we read earlier. Or rare statements that people don't really quote. Why is that? Why is Jehovah the name given to Christ? Because He's the only begotten Son. It's the Father's name given to the Son. It's actually the evidence that He is the Son of the Father. And the story of Abraham and Isaac is a very good illustration of this particular example that we have. Isaac carried the name of his father and the line of descent came through Isaac, of course. And in the story of Abraham and Isaac, when he was to sacrifice Isaac, we have this beautiful picture of the love that God has for man. When he told Isaac, take your son, don't take your servant or your, your friend, it's your son. Remember Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and was glad? It was because on that mountain, Abraham understood the greater sacrifice of the father giving his only begotten son. And that's why, brothers and sisters, the devil is trying to confuse the issue over the identity of who the Son of God is and what that means, what that sonship really means. Because it destroys the picture of God's love. I want to ask you a question. This is if you're a parent. Is it easier to give up yourself or your child? You don't have to answer. I think the answer is obvious. Especially if your child is a loving, obedient child who only does what pleases you. I know that child does not exist. <laughs> but even so, we still as parents would give up ourselves before we would our children, right? Christ, brothers and sisters, was the perfect son. We read in, in Proverbs, he was daily the delight of the father. He only does the things that please him. And then the Bible tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a beautiful and powerful truth. It changes hearts. 
And so there is no question as to the equality of Christ with the Father. Now we understand why. Philippians 2.6 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Christ is equal with God. He has the same nature as his Father. But that does not make him the God of the Bible. He is the Son of the God of the Bible. So he's not far. He's that begotten, beloved Son. The Savior of the world. And as such... God recognizes that in the highest honor. In Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, it says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The, the Father calls his Son God. We know how that came about now. Christ inherited that nature from his Father. There is no one else in the whole universe that holds that position. And so, does that mean we honor Christ less than the Father? Because He's the begotten Son? Not at all. John 5, 23 says that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent Him. We honor Him as the Son, as the only begotten Son. And uh, I want to go to this section, our time is running, I took a little longer, sorry about that. But when we talk about this, the question pops up in people's minds, and I don't want to ignore it. Well, what you said, brother, sounds good, sounds convincing, you showed a lot of Bible scriptures, but you totally ignored the issue of the Spirit. You know, you said, yes, when you, said, you, you set us up nice and all, but what about the Spirit? How does that fit into the picture? Because the common belief is, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in Trinity. This is what we all believe. You're telling us all this stuff. What about the Holy Spirit? So I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures to help us understand what the Scripture reveals about that. Because, you know, we made some claims that the Father is the only true God. There's no one else but Him. He's the God of the Bible. Okay. The Son is the begotten Son. He inherited the nature of His Father. That's what makes Him who He is. Okay. Spirit now. Tell us about the Spirit. So we want to see what the Scripture says. Because brothers and sisters, this is also part of that message that the angel talks about to worship God. We need to understand what it says here when it comes to the Spirit. Because our understanding of the Spirit will also affect our worship. It will affect our prayer. Let's look at uh, this verse. We just looked at it. I want to explore it just briefly here. Philippians 2.6, it talks about Christ. It says, well, being in the form of God... Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Two particular points we learned from this verse. There's others. But two particular points I want to point out is, according to this verse, God has what? A form, right? And Christ is in the same form. He has the form of God. Now that might be a little bit odd. What does that mean? God has a form. When we talk about form, we're talking about something on a physical level, right? Something that you can, you can define, something you can see, something you can behold with your eyes. It tells us God has a form. Sadly, a lot of people think that God does not have a form. That God is only spirit and totally invisible. This verse says God has form, right? Not only that, but Christ himself taught that. Man was made in the image and form of God as well. We'll come to that tomorrow, no problem. Does God have a form according to Christ? Jesus says in John 5, verse 37, 
And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. You can, this is in the Bible. This verse is in the Bible. According to Jesus, the Father not only has voice, but has what? Shape. Right? And uh, I, I'm not sure if this is something that's new to you or not, so I don't want to go too fast, but uh, a lot of people, brothers and sisters, don't believe that. God has form and He has shape. He sits on a throne in the universe. There are angels and there are elders around that throne. There is someone sitting there. It's not empty. And uh, God has revealed a little bit about Himself in visions of God. Let's look at that a little bit closer. Ezekiel 1.26. He's one of these people who had a vision of God. It says, Above the, the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. Ezekiel here is seeing a glimpse, a vision of heaven and of the throne of God and of the occupant of the throne. And he describes the occupant of the throne as what? Looking in appearance like a man. So the form and the shape that God has looks like a man. It's really the other way around, right? Because man was made in the image of God. So God, when he made man, he made us in his image. Not only spiritual image, not only in character, but also in shape and in form. Brothers and sisters, God exists on a physical, visible level in heaven. I'll say that again. He exists on a physical and visible level. He is seen by the beings in heaven. Of course, He is in glory and He is light, but there is someone there. See, our God is real. Our God is not just a concept, He is not just an idea. He is not just a spirit. He is a real being, a real tangible being. And uh, he's not only that, of course, because this is the verse we usually are familiar with. In John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when he was talking, he was talking about the Father. And this is usually what we uh, understand when we talk about God. But we don't want to ignore the first part. Because this helps us understand more about the Spirit of God. You see, according to what we found so far, God is a being who exists on a physical and visible level. The beings in heaven see Him, and some prophets on earth were privileged to see glimpses of that. But God, the same one, also exists on this level that is called Spirit. And on that level, He is invisible, spiritual and Invisible. For example, we pray tonight, right? And we ask for God's presence to be reclaimed, the promise that Jesus will be here. Can we see Jesus on the physical, visible level? Right now. But we believe He's here, correct? Because we believe He also can be on the spiritual and invisible. Just because we don't see Him with our eyes doesn't mean He's not here. God has the ability to do that. Obviously, His Son inherited all these things from his father as we shall see but the point here is very significant that God can do that now don't ask me how God does that I have no idea I don't think anyone can explain how he does that but we believe that he does I want to look at some Bible definitions for spirit in Isaiah 40 verse 13 it says who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor has taught him 
Paul quotes this in Romans 11, verse 34, and says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? So one Bible definition for spirit is mind. Now, when, if, you, uh, if you were to have a surgery and open up your, your head and look for your mind, would you ever find it? You'll find your brain, right? That's the physical structure. But where is the mind? The mind is an invisible component of our being, right? We believe it exists, right? If I were to ask you, do you have everybody? Yes, of course we have a mind. But if you were to say, okay, how can you prove it? Can you show me? You can't, you can't have any physical evidence to show me the mind. Maybe the things you do, how we believe, how we have concepts and intelligence and all. There's a lot of evidence for it. But you know what I'm talking about? Just like God has a physical and visible component where he exists and is spiritual, God made us in his image. We have a brain, this physical structure, and it is the mind. And so when we talk about the spirit of the Lord, it refers to the mind of the Lord. We have an example of that in a story in uh, the book of Daniel. It gives us a little bit about the relationship between man and his spirit or his mind. In Daniel 2, 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. According to this verse, who was troubled? Nebuchadnezzar or someone else? Nebuchadnezzar. Where was he troubled? In his mind. So he wasn't necessarily physically shaking, but something on the inside, his mind was troubled, puzzled, perturbed, disturbed, whatever you want to call it. Something on the inside bothered him. So the relationship between man and his spirit is the spirit of man is this component of our being, the invisible component of our being, which we also call mind. Now keep that in mind because this will help us understand when we talk about the spirit of God, which is also called the Holy Spirit, because God, of course, is a holy being. So that's, it's, not, it's, not a part, it's a, not a name as such, but you would think me very, very uh, strange. Maybe you would think I should be hospitalized if I said, no, no, you know what? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who was troubled. It was someone else called his spirit. Yeah, you would look at me funny, just like you're looking at me now. And you think, what's wrong with him? His spirit, it's not someone else. His spirit is him. Of course it's him. But yet we are not consistent when we talk about the spirit of God. When we talk about the spirit of God, all of a sudden, a lot of people think, oh, but there is God, but the spirit of God is someone else. You know what I'm talking about, right? Someone else called maybe God the Holy Spirit or whatever description we give, but it's someone other than God. I want to explore that, like I said, a little bit in this relation between man and his spirit and God and his spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Paul here is, is making a drawing... A, a comparison. He says, in the same way that man and his spirit, no one knows the things of a man except his spirit, says even so. What does even so mean? In the same way, in like manner, similarly, right? It says even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. So if, if we understand the relationship between man and his spirit, it should be 
similar or in like manner to the relationship between God and His Spirit. Nobody believes that the Spirit of man is a different person to man, right? Then nobody should believe that the Spirit of God is a different person to God, right? If we want to be consistent. Now, if you want to be inconsistent, no problem, we can believe anything we like. But that's not what Paul is saying, brothers and sisters. He says, even so. It's a pattern. It's an image. It reflects it. So is the Spirit of God just a force? Psalm 139, verse 7. David says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? The Spirit of God is His presence on the spiritual, invisible level. The same God who is sitting on the throne has the ability to do that, brothers and sisters. Can you believe that? A lot of people can't, and so they say, no, no, he must send someone else in order to do that. God, who sits on his throne, can right now be present here among us by his Spirit. And he has the ability to do that all by himself. He doesn't need help from anyone else. And if you find that amazing, you're not the only one. He's God. It's his very own presence. Psalm 51, 11 says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Here it is. The Holy Spirit is God's presence. Because God is a spirit, as well as a being who has shape and form. And so that's why the Bible tells us where this spirit actually comes from. In John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Proceedeth from the Father. The Spirit comes from God. Remember we read earlier that to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are how many things? All things including the Spirit, and we found already that even the Son was begotten of the Father. So the Father is the great source of everything. He's the source of the Son, He's the source of the Spirit, and through His Son, He created everything else. He is the source of everything. That's why the angel says, Fear God, give glory to Him, who made heaven and earth and everything, the source of everything. And we're seeing the way to do that. It's through Christ. And Christ gives us this comforter that we're talking about here. Where else does the Holy Spirit come from? It comes from the Father. But John 20, 22 tells us, when he had said this, speaking of Jesus, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, or the, or the Holy Ghost. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Where did the Spirit come from? From Christ. Because Spirit means what? Mind, presence. If you look up the meanings in, in, in the concordance, you'll find it means breath, means life. Every meaning you will find is referring to something invisible and intangible, but that is there. Interestingly enough, in Spirit Prophecy, in the book Desire of Ages, how many read that book? Desire of Ages. Okay, a few people read it. It says, Christ gives them the breath of his own spirit, the life of his own life. Does that sound like a different person to Christ? Not at all. The life of his own life. That's what the Spirit is. You see, brothers and sisters, this is how today we can still be connected with Christ 
and the Father, even though we don't see them physically with our eyes. We're connected with them, not through someone else, or not connected to someone else, as we shall see. Because in Ephesians 4, 4, it tells us that there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. There's one spirit. Not many spirits. So, which spirit is it? Is it the spirit of the Father or the spirit of the Son? We're going to see that in a minute. But there's only one spirit. The reason I want to really simplify this, brothers and sisters, like I said, the, the, the common misunderstanding and belief today is, is this belief that God is composed of these three persons who are all co-equal, who are all co-eternal. These three persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This concept is not the picture that the Bible paints of God. The Bible actually says God is only one person. It's the Father. And He had a begotten Son, who is a real person. And the Spirit of God is God's own person, not a different person to Him. Just like your spirit is not another person to you. But it is your very own person, your very own character, it's your very own identity. That's who you really are. So there is one spirit, one body, and one spirit. Here's a, a question I'll ask you based on this statement. In Signs of the Times, it says here, but there are two spirits in the world, the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan. I want to ask you a question. Is the spirit of Satan a different person to Satan? I want you to think very carefully about this question before you answer. Is the spirit of Satan a different person to Satan? The answer, if you answered no, 10 points, correct. Nobody, again, you would think it's strange if we were to think that way or suggest that. But brothers and sisters, tradition is so strong that when we say that the spirit of God is not a different person to God, everybody thinks that's strange. How many spirits are there here, according to this statement? Two. It's the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan. So if the spirit of Satan is the same person as Satan, therefore, we have to conclude that the spirit of God is the same person as God, not a different person. It is the very personal presence of God himself, not someone else. Praise the Lord. So do the Father and the Son have a different spirit? If there's only one spirit, let's see how that works. Romans 8, 9, and 10. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We find here that Paul refers to this spirit of God, and then he calls it the spirit of Christ, right? So he's talking about how many spirits? One, he calls it the Spirit of God, and then he calls it the Spirit of Christ. And then he says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead, but the Spirit is life. He's talking about the same thing. These are different terms referring to the same thing. The, the Spirit, or the presence of God, is also the presence and Spirit of the Son. Now someone might say, well, how does that work? I don't know, but God said it, and I happen to believe it, and so should you if you believe the Bible. Isn't that right? See, brothers and sisters, this is what righteousness by faith really is all about, and we're going to explore this subject 
throughout, like I said, throughout this, this camp, we're going to be discussing practically how does this, what, what does this, how does this affect and impact our understanding of our relationship with Christ and beautiful, important subjects such as righteousness by faith. This is really what we're talking about. This is not just an alternative view of God that, well, you believe this way, brother, and, and we believe that way, and we'll just, we'll meet in heaven and see who is right. This is not just an alternative view. This radically impacts our understanding of the gospel and how we have a relationship with God and with Christ. It is the everlasting gospel, according to Revelation 4, 6, and 7 that we read earlier. John chapter 6, verse 63 gives us another definition. It says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The words are spirit and the words are life. So spirit equals life. That's another Bible definition for spirit. You can't see life. You can't touch life. It's an invisible, intangible reality. Correct? The spirit is an invisible, intangible reality. It is life. And when Christ spoke these words, he was referring to his spirit or his very own person. Or this interesting statement commenting on that. Christ is not here referring to his doctrine. Quoting this particular passage, quoting John 6, 63, and it says, Christ is not here referring to his doctrine, but to his person, the divinity of his character. What was Christ talking about? Words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He was talking about his person. When Christ was talking about spirit, he's talking about a person. Make no mistake about it. Not a different person, but his own person. A lot of people, you know, get to say, oh, hold on, you know, are you trying to say the Holy Spirit is not a person? And they go to all the passages in the scriptures trying to prove that the Holy Spirit is a person. Amen. I believe the Holy Spirit is a person. It is the person of Christ. Not a different person. Good luck trying to prove that the Spirit is a person different to Christ. But yet, that's what most people believe, brothers and sisters. And we'll see why that is the case. I'm about to close. I know I've gone a little bit over time. Uh, good Christians, please forgive me. But I have a little bit more. We're almost there. Is that all right? Can we hold on to our seats for a little bit longer? And then I can let you go to bed. We're almost done. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, who do we receive? John 14, 23, here's what the Bible says. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So who do we receive? The Father and the Son. The Father does not have to physically get off his throne and come down to earth to be with you and me. He can do that if he wants to, but he can also come by his spirit. And when we have his spirit, it's the same being who is sitting on the throne. And it's also his son, who we believe is on the right hand of the throne. And that's all that occupy the throne. Isn't that right? There's no one else on the throne. What did Christ promise to send us before he left? Here is one verse a lot of people use to try and prove. It's probably the only verse that really seems to suggest that the spirit might be another person. John 14, 16, and 26. It says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And then it goes on and says, But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And usually people say, Well, there you go, brother. Jesus said here, 
that the comforter is another comforter. Not only that, but he also called him he. He is another comforter. He is another person. It's true that Jesus said that, but he didn't mean that conclusion. Jesus himself explains himself, and we will see that in a minute. But there was a transition that was happening, we need to understand, brothers and sisters. Christ was leaving his disciples from being with them in the flesh. He was going to leave them, and he was going to send this spirit. Tomorrow I'm going to go into detail to examine that so we can understand it properly. But he wasn't going to continue to be with them in the flesh. He was going to be with them in another form called the Comforter, all the... Holy Spirit. But it was He Himself, not someone else. He explains that, as we shall see. But I just want to look at a couple of verses that before I come back to the next verse, verse uh, 18 in John 14. In Galatians 4, 6, we're told the following, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Is the Spirit of the Son a different person to the Son? Clearly not, because we saw the case with Nebuchadnezzar and all these other uh, verses that we read. The Spirit of the Son is the Son. Not in a physical, visible uh, form, right? It's on the spiritual and invisible level. So well, someone will say, well, hold on a minute. Are you trying to suggest that, that the Lord Jesus is really the Spirit? Yes, of course. I'm not trying to suggest that. The scripture spells that out for us. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Only the Son can make you free. And if the Son make you free, you shall be free. Indeed, nobody else can make you free. You realize that? That's why it says the Lord is that Spirit, you see, brothers and sisters, when Jesus left this earth, he didn't abandon his disciples and send them someone else that they never met before. He was to continue to be with them. He continued to be with them in a different form to being with them physically. Notice what he says. We'll go back to John 14 as to who this comforter is. John 14, 18. Just a couple of verses after he said, I will send you another comforter. Notice what he says. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Why is this verse ignored when people quote John 14, 16? This is how he explains it. This other comforter that's coming says, listen, don't, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I will come to you. But how does he come back? In the same form? No, in another form. But it is the same person not a different person. Here's another statement from Ellen White. The Savior is our comforter. This I have proved him to be. The Savior, of course, is none other than, than Christ. And so we're going to ask a question. We'll close with these couple of slides. We're almost there. Why are we weak today as a people, as a church, as, as believers? What is, what is it that the devil has succeeded in doing that has weakened God's people? The answer is in this quote. And you can already guess, I guess, but let's read it together. The reason why the churches are weak and sickly and ready to die is that the enemy has brought in influences of a discouraging nature to bear upon trembling souls. He has sought to shut Jesus from their view as the comforter, as one who reproves, who warns, who admonishes them, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. 
So to teach that Jesus is not the comforter or that the comforter is someone other than Christ is a teaching inspired by who? According to this statement, it's a teaching inspired by Satan. I know this is a hard saying, but I did not say it. Brothers and sisters, this helps us understand that the devil has been successful in separating the Spirit of God from God and creating this other person that does not exist on the physical, visible plane. It's a person that is shrouded in mystery called God, the Holy Spirit. It's not the Father, it's not the Son, it's another person. This person does not exist in the Bible. There is no God, the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The Spirit is really the presence of the Father and the Son. And as a result of that, people believe that the Comforter or the Spirit is not Jesus, but it is this other person. Satan has been successful in shutting Jesus from our view as the Comforter. We say, oh yeah, he's our High Priest, he's our Savior. But over here we have the Comforter. Thank you, Jesus, you're doing all this. But thank you also, this Comforter. And all the credit and all the glory that should go to Jesus as our comforter goes to someone else. You see why this affects our worship? And this is why God gives and sends this last call to the world. To fear God, to give glory to Him and to worship Him. We saw who this God is. We saw the way to the Father only through Christ. And we saw how Christ continues to be the way to the Father for us today, even though He's not here physically. His Spirit, His very own person, is here. That's how we have that connection. And our last verse is Ephesians 2.18, and it wraps up everything we said very well and very succinctly. It says, For through Him, or through Christ, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Through Christ, we have access by one Spirit. That one Spirit is still Christ. It's through Christ. He's the only way to the Father. You see, brothers and sisters, there isn't Christ as the way to the Father, and then that expired, and for us today, we have someone else who takes us to the Father, or someone else who takes us to Christ. Christ Himself continues to be the way to the Father. We don't need an intermediary between us and Christ. That's what a lot of other churches believe, right? In, in uh, anyone who is someone who can bring you closer, maybe Mary can intercede for you or some dead saint can go and intercede to Christ for you on behalf. We have a form of that belief and we say, you know what? God, the Holy Spirit brings you to Christ and then Christ brings you to God. Any, anyone or in any way, if you put someone between us and Christ, you are distancing us from Christ. He came to be one with us. So we create an idea that puts a distance between us and him. That idea comes from the enemy. We have access to the Father by one Spirit, and the Lord is that Spirit. Does it make sense? Do you understand? What, I'm not asking you to agree, by the way. You don't have to agree. But what, what I want to I want to know that we communicated clearly enough so that you understood what's being said. If that's the case, then praise the Lord. Because that's what we prayed for. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.